American lutenist Ron McFarlane on this edition of Presto. So the challenge is to become the kind of musician that existed back in the 16th and 17th century. You have to immerse yourself in the style. There's only so far you can go because I come from not the 16th century. I come from the 20th and now 21st century. And my background is in folk music and rock music and all the different kinds of music that I love. But at the same time, I've spent a lot of time playing and thinking about Renaissance and early Baroque music. I'm John Nowacki, and Presto is a production of New England Public Radio. American lutenist, composer, and teacher Ron McFarlane is best known as an interpreter of Renaissance music. Nominated for a Grammy Award in 2009, McFarlane has taught at the Peabody Conservatory and was awarded an honorary doctorate of music from the Shenandoah Conservatory for bringing the lute to a worldwide audience. McFarlane has over 60 recordings as both a solo performer and in collaboration with others, including the groups Earhart and the Baltimore Consort. His most recent recording, The Celtic Lute, is a return to 17th and 18th century music from the British Isles and blends traditional Scottish and Irish folk music of the period. Ron, welcome to Presto. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, I want to start out by having you talk about the beginnings of your career because I know that you're a self-taught musician. You were learning rock guitar, but you're playing lute now. How did you do it? I started at age 13 when in junior high school, in the school cafeteria, there was a band of my classmates playing the Surfari's hit, Wipeout, which probably sounded terrible, but to my 13-year-old ears, it just sounded wonderful. It was the best thing I ever heard. <laughs> and I immediately had to go out and get a guitar and did and just practiced like crazy. You know, not very many things in my life have turned on a dime. Most everything has come on gradually, but that's one moment where I can say I just fell madly in love with music and in that moment with the guitar just in one day, in mm. one minute. So anyway, I played rock guitar for a good while. I took up classical guitar because I thought and had heard that it would improve my rock playing. And I think it did, but I really fell in love with classical music and classical guitar. So I went to school for that and went to a couple of conservatories, Shenandoah Conservatory and Peabody Conservatory. Mm. And I found that my favorite music to play on the guitar was the Renaissance and Baroque music that had originally been lute music. So I gravitated toward wanting to feel what it was like to play that music on the instrument it was originally written for. I imagined I would play both guitar and lute, but it took only about six months before <laughs> I realized I had to go completely into the lute because... I love the music so much. Were there performers that you heard playing this repertory on the guitar that you really admired and wanted to, say, emulate? Well, I'd actually heard Julian Bream playing on the lute. He was dividing his concerts at that time in the 1970s, playing the first half on the lute, generally Elizabethan music, and then the second half on guitar. And I had imagined following that pattern, but my life took a different direction. What do you mean? Well, I gave up the guitar altogether and went completely into the lute. What I have ended up doing, though, is I often divide my concerts between Renaissance lute in the first half 
and then a Baroque lute in the second half. And there are two rather different instruments because the lute evolved so drastically over the years. Now, I know what they look like because I've seen them and I've heard them played in concert. Other folks may not know. What are some of the differences between the Renaissance instrument and the later Baroque ones? Well, the later Baroque one has many more strings. You have a standard of 24 strings in the 18th century lute, 24 strings divided into 13 courses, a course being a pair of unison or octave strung strings. The Renaissance lute generally has no more than six courses until you get to the end of the 16th century. You also have a bent back peg box on the Renaissance lute. With the Baroque lute, you have that, but eventually it turns into a swan neck design. Generally, you have larger bodies on the Baroque instrument, though with the Renaissance lute, you did have bass lutes as well as alto lutes, tenor lutes, soprano lutes Mm -hmm. of all different sizes. And, of course, the larger body that you're describing, that's going to give the Baroque instrument more resonance, more presence? Absolutely more resonance, and also because they changed the tuning from a tuning based on fourths to a tuning based on a D minor chord with a full octave of diatonically tuned bass strings below that. So as a listener, what does that mean to the listener? What would we hear as a difference? What you hear is because the intervals are closer together on the open strings, there's a lot more ringing through of the strings. It's much more sonorous, as you had mentioned. You have more campanella effects where strings ring through one another. And often the composition will be designed to take advantage of that idiomatic possibility on the lute. I want to go back to some of the people who were lutenists you mentioned Julian Bream, and I'm glad you did, because would it be fair to call him the father of lute playing in America? He was the one who popularized it more than anyone. He was the first one to show that it could be played as a virtuoso instrument. There were other pioneers, Suzanne Block being one, daughter of Ernst Block. She was an early pioneer. Diana Poulton is another one from the earlier 20th century. It was Julian Bream who really brought virtuosity to the lute for the first time in the 20th century. That really inspired me to go into the lute as well. You're part of what I would refer to as a pantheon of lutenists, including people like Paul Odette, Nigel North, Jacob Lindbergh, James Tyler, Stephen Stubbs, and, of course, Julian Bream, as you mentioned. I think they are all part of a resurgence of interest in the lute and repertory. And how have you seen that developing over the years? Well, it has been just an amazing 50 years or so. I I haven't been playing for 50 years. I've been playing for about 40, though. And the number of players playing at a really high level has really kind of exploded. I see young players playing incredibly well. And it's very heartening as we get older and the decades go by to see young players able to play the virtuoso music as well as take up continual playing Uh, You see the lute and the theorbo much more often in Baroque orchestras, accompanying singers, accompanying violin, whereas 50 years ago, you probably only would have seen harpsichord or a chamber organ in those ensemble accompanimental roles. But in the 17th century, the lute and the theorbo were the most prized accompanying instruments, mainly because they had control of the dynamics in a way that an organ or a harpsichord did not. They could shape the piano, the forte, right along with the singer or the violinist. 
So it was a very expressive kind of accompaniment. It provided more shadings and more subtleties, if exactly. you like, perhaps. And that's why it was so prized. But again, you mentioned another instrument. You mentioned the theorbo. I yes. know what that is. I've seen them. I've heard them played. Not everybody does. Could you describe it? It's an offshoot of the lute. I would say it's kind of like a bass lute. It has a large body. It has a long bass extension. And it's tuned somewhat lower than the lute. It has a reentrant tuning, which means that the first string is not the highest sounding string, but rather the first two strings, which are tuned to the pitches of the lute, are tuned down the octave. So the third string is actually the highest sounding string. You've got your own well-established solo career, but in addition, many folks would recognize your name because of your association with the Baltimore Consort. How did that group come about? Oh, my goodness. It came about with my first lute teacher, Roger Harmon, who taught lute and lute-related courses at Peabody Conservatory. I had my first lute lesson with Roger, and he had started a group of students at that time to play the Elizabethan Broken Consort Repertory. That's music from around Shakespeare's time. And gradually, over those first couple of years, there was some turnover until in about 1980, I think we kind of hit a critical mass of either advanced students or professionals, and we renamed ourselves the Baltimore Consort, and we've been together about 40 years now. (laughs) So we really kind of grew up together. And we started out as a local group with a concert series based in Baltimore, Mm -hmm. And we would sometimes do a concert as far away as Virginia or Delaware. And gradually, we evolved from being a local group with a local concert series to more of a touring and recording group. In addition to your time with the consorts, you've managed to perform and record 11 CDs as a soloist. What kinds of ways are the two activities related and how might they be different? One feeds the other for me. It always keeps it fresh. When you're playing with other people, you're always getting ideas from one another, kind of sparking off one another, talking through the music. Sometimes you're making compromises to accommodate someone else, and you make music together in that way. When you come to the music as a soloist, you're completely free to do anything you like. No one tells you what to do. On the other hand, it's all your fault. So I really like having that freedom, and yet I love playing with my friends. I I love the folks in Baltimore Consort. We're just as close as family members. I think one of the things that's wonderful about watching a concert like that is you can see the give and take among the players, and you know that what you're seeing is not just something that's on the page, but everybody's contributing something. Definitely. But then you were talking about being the solo performer, and you've got this newer CD out that's the Celtic Lute, And it's your first solo CD in over a decade, and you've been describing it as a return to some of your earliest musical influences. What do you mean by that? Well, in the 1970s, I began listening to bands like the Chieftains and the Bothy Band and other Celtic bands, Celtic musicians. And I've just been a huge fan of traditional Irish and traditional Scottish music since the 1970s. And I was just listening to it for fun. Sometime in the 1980s, I learned that there actually is a body of Scottish music for the lute, and it goes back to around the 1620s or so. And even that music is probably much older, but was only written down when you get to the 1620s. There is a body of about 600 pieces from the 17th century from Scotland. However, 
There's no music from Ireland. None at all. None at all that survives. The lute does not seem to have caught hold in Ireland. The harp was king and the traditional Irish instrument. But it seemed that there's a natural connection between the music of Scotland and the music of Ireland. And if you think about those Scottish pieces from the 17th century, most of them are not pieces that were originally conceived as lute music, but rather they're tunes that you find arranged for all different instruments. And some lute player back around 400 years ago might have found a tune that he loved and then made an arrangement for the lute. And because he wrote it down, it survived until the 20th and 21st centuries. Now, I've considered the pieces on this album just to be pieces that were somehow overlooked. No one quite got round to writing them down back in the old days. So I've made my own arrangements. Many of them are tunes that I've loved, hearing the Bothy Band, Chieftains, and other Celtic musicians. Others have some connections with even earlier repertories from the 17th century. But it's an album of my own arrangements of many of my favorite Celtic tunes. And when you say it's your own arrangement, again, you're talking about taking a melody, just the melody itself, and then you're doing the chords and things with that melody. And indeed, the melody is all that survives. The tunes don't come down to us in arrangements, but rather one has to become the kind of musicians that existed back then, because they weren't just performers reading the music off the page. They got involved. They rolled up their sleeves and made their arrangements made improvisations, probably theme variation. They made their own harmonies. So they were very much involved in the co-composition of the pieces, of the tunes that would be in this Celtic tradition. I'm glad you mentioned the harp from Ireland as being part of that tradition, because I think on this disc, what I've heard, as you're playing the lute, it's as if you're playing harp. I think some of that goes back to the kind of tuning of the Baroque lute, because I have the D minor tuning that creates this campanella effect. You have lots of strings ringing through, which is the most characteristic sound of the harp. It is this beautiful ringing through of tones. The pieces that are on the disc, how did you go about choosing them? Well, many of them were just tunes that I already knew, and I went, oh, I've got to do Kid on the Mountain. I've got to do The Butterfly. I've got to do this one and that one. So that makes up about half the album mm-hmm. right there, just tunes that I've loved. Then after that, I looked through old collections of music. The Gal Collection is a wonderful old Scottish collection of fiddle tunes from the 18th century from Neil and Nathaniel Gal, both prominent fiddlers back then, and also O'Neill's Music of Ireland. Francis O'Neill was an Irish musician who moved to America and lived in Chicago. He even became a police commissioner. <laughs> But he was the most avid collector of tunes you can imagine. And many of these tunes he brought over, and he wrote down pieces that he remembered from his youth, as well as picking up tunes from traveling musicians. These are all pieces in the oral tradition. These are tunes that might have been around for not only decades, maybe even a century or more, but simply handed down generation to generation and then finally written down. So we have no idea how far back many of these tunes go. So I went through these collections and just found tunes that I thought were great tunes and also tunes that looked like they would be a good idiomatic fit for the technique of the lute. Well, how about picking one or two and talking about it and we'll play it. Well, one of those is Banish Misfortune from O'Neill's Music of Ireland. It's a jig from Ireland. 
I get the feeling like it's always been there. I have no idea how old it might be, but it was finally written down right around the end of the 19th century. Mm. Well, what was it that struck you about it, and how did that affect oh, as you were laying it out? It's just a joyous tune. It just makes you want to dance, and it's literally a dance tune, just probably an accompaniment for dancing. But it's just its spirit. It's very buoyant. It's a very happy tune. Well, it's a great description. Let's take a listen to it. This is Banish Misfortune and performed by Ron McFarlane. Listening to Banish Misfortune, performed by lutenist Ron McFarlane from his latest CD, The Celtic Lute. What is another one that perhaps is a favorite of yours from the disc? I think The Butterfly is a big favorite of mine. I think I first heard that 35, 40 years ago when the Bothy Band played it as a group piece. The Butterfly is a slip jig. And a jig is ordinarily a dance in 6-8, fast 6-8. A slip jig is in 9-8 time, and it creates this sort of rolling effect that's very distinctive. The butterfly sounds more like it's floating than driving. Just a tune that I love. Well, let's listen to The Butterfly, again performed by Ron McFarlane from the disc The Celtic Lute.
Ron McFarlane playing The Butterfly, taken from his latest CD, The Celtic Lute. Ron, I'd like to go back, though, to a CD that I came across recently and was absolutely floored by, and that's Barley Moon with the group Earhart. How did you and the other instrumentalists come up with the sounds that we hear on the disc? The instrumentation is two lutes, a colacione, which is a kind of bass lute, and percussion, and vocals. The album is divided between music by known composers, such as William Byrd and John Dowland, and traditional music, which is, by definition, anonymous. And the whole point of the record is to show the intersection of art music and folk music, because there was not the dividing line back in the 16th century that we have nowadays between the performer on one hand and the composer on the other, and between art music and folk music. They were much more closely allied. I wouldn't say there wasn't a difference, but in this album, we spend a lot of time in that gray area between art music and folk music. We have some of the traditional tunes that we've made our own arrangements of by necessity, because all that survives of many of these is just the tune and maybe a set of words. But you have to create the harmonies, the variations, any kind of solos, any sort of improvisation. You have to make it up yourself, just as the musicians did back 400 years ago. So the challenge is to become the kind of musician that existed back in the 16th and 17th century. You have to immerse yourself in the style. There's only so far you can go because I come from not the 16th century. I come from the 20th and now 21st century. And my background is in folk music and rock music and all the different kinds of music that I love. But at the same time, I've spent a lot of time playing and thinking about Renaissance and early Baroque music. So all that comes into play when we're making our arrangements. In the case of John Barleycorn, that's a tune that I heard on a Traffic album back around 1970 (laughs) with Steve Winwood singing it. And decades later, when I found out that it actually comes from the time when the lute was the most prominent musical instrument, I had the double pleasure of playing a lute piece and covering a classic rock song (laughs) all at the same time. That was terrific. There's a piece by Bob Dylan, Masters of War. Masters of War is not an original tune. It's Bob Dylan's text. It's his own words. But he's chosen an old medieval tune called Nottoman Town. Oh, yes. And what we've done is we've gone back and played Nottoman Town. And anyone who knows Bob Dylan's masterpiece, Masters of War, will recognize the tune as the same tune. But the words are very different. And our arrangement is much more allied to the music of the Renaissance and medieval times. You've mentioned it, so we might as well play it because I think that's a wonderful cut. Terrific. This is Nottoman Town, taken from Earhart's disc, Barley Moon.
Stood stark still, threw me to the dirt. Oh, she tore at my hide and she bruised my shirt from saddle to steel. I climbed back again, and on my ten toes, I rode. Listening to Nottoman Town, taken from the disc Barley Moon, featuring the ensemble Earhart, which of course Ron McFarlane is part of. And I love how you go back and forth from the folk oriented music to the more quote unquote serious music of the time, say by John Dowland and other composers. I'd like to ask about one more cut, and you mentioned it, and that's a John Barleycorn. That's one of my favorites, I think, just because I first heard it with Jackie McShee and John Renborn and Pentangle, again, back from the 70s. 
your take on it is completely different. How did you do that? You know, I just started playing with it. I knew I wanted to arrange the piece if I could, and I just started messing around on the lute the way one does. And I came up with a texture and an approach that felt like it was idiomatic for the lute and gradually built it up instrument by instrument, looked up the text, looked up the words, invented instrumental breaks along the way. But it was a very organic process. I started out just working it out on my own at home. And then I brought it first to Brian, who's our vocalist, mm -hmm. and we looked at it for a little bit. He started to map out where different verses might go. And then the whole group got together. And just like a rock band might do, we ran through it a few times and made adjustments along the way, decided, okay, maybe if we have an instrumental break here and then two more verses, and maybe we're ready for another instrumental break there. It was just a gradual process, an arrangement by committee. <laughs> in the end. I just sort of got it started, but it ended up being a group arrangement more than anything. Well, let's listen to it because, again, I think it's a phenomenal cut. And Brian Kay is the soloist. He's also playing yes. lute along with the rest of Earhart. And this is the arrangement of John Barleycorn. Thank you. 
scythe so sharp to cut him off at the knee. They rolled him and tied him by the waist, serving him most barbarously. They hired men with sharp pitchforks who pricked him to the heart. And the loader he served him worse than that, for he bound him to the cart. Tree sticks to cut him skin from bone. In the miller, he served him worse than that, for he ground him between two stones. And little Sir John and the nut brown bowl, and whiskey in the glass. And little Sir John and the nut brown bone Grew the strongest man at last And the huntsman, he can't hunt the fox Nor so loudly blow his horn And the tinker, he can't mend kettles nor pots Without a little barley Brian Kay, who's also playing lute along with Ron McFarlane and the rest of Earhart from their disc Barley Moon. Besides playing other people's music, you've been writing your own works for lute. Why? You know, I had heard about the famous pianist, Evgeny Kissin, and I had heard how in earlier times, that is when he was a younger boy, he would play little improvisations. He would have his own little pieces that he would play that would describe one or another family member or describe an event that happened in the family. But then when he got a little older, he decided basically to put away childish things, as the Bible says, and devote himself to the serious piano literature. And I can completely understand that. But I had thought, well, in previous centuries, that never would have happened. There was never that big gulf between the composer on one hand and the performer on the other. If he had been born 200 years earlier, certainly he would have gone on to compose his own music as well as perhaps perform music of others. And I was thinking, I'd like to hear those little pieces that he wrote. I bet they're charming. But of course, I probably never would. But it made me think a little bit more about how composers and performers were always one and the same person back in the old days. And I thought, you know, I don't even know if I'm going to be very much good at this, but darn it, I'm going to try. 
that was in 1996, uh, I had that thought. That's when I began, late in the year of, of 96. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to kind of take off on that tradition from the 16th and 17th century of the lutenist slash composer. And I began writing pieces in a sort of 16th, 17th century style. I wrote an Almond, I wrote a Galliard, I wrote a Gigue. But gradually, I began thinking, well, you know, I could write music in any style that suits the lute. And of course, I've loved all kinds of music in my life. And so gradually, the styles of music that I was writing in just began to reflect all the kinds of music that I love, everything that will fit on the instrument. And so I began writing, performing, even recording the music on the lute, and then began even going beyond what could be done on a single lute and began writing songs and writing music for lute with other instruments. And that's basically where I am now, writing solos and writing ensemble music for lute, and of course loving to play the old music from the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, which I'll certainly always do. You're on tour an awful lot during the year. What do you do? to recharge? How do you kind of pull back and take a breather? I have a regular morning routine, at least when I'm not on tour. If I'm able to get up in the morning and not have a concert that day, I'll get up early, I'll meditate, I'll run, do a little bit of reading. I do a good bit of practicing, probably six hours or so each day that I don't have to be somewhere or do something else. But I've always wanted to play music for a living. When I was a teenager, it was suggested to me to get a degree in teaching so you'll have something to fall back on. And I thought, I don't want to have something to fall back on. This is what I want to do. If I have something to fall back on, it, I might, in lean times, be tempted to fall back on it. But if I have nothing to fall back on, then I have to do this thing that I'm very passionate about doing. And yes, there have been lean times. There are easier ways to support a family than playing the lute for a living. And I should say, I did teach at Peabody for 10 years, but primarily I've been a player. That's what I wanted to do, to play music for people. And I'm just well-suited for the life. It's what I've always wanted to do. So it's not too hard to be recharged. I'm pretty charged up about just doing it still. Lutenist Ron McFarlane, who is performing, touring, recording, and doing so much more. Ron, thank you so much for coming by. My pleasure. Thank you. Let us know what you think about Presto. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send an email to radio at nepr.net. The executive producer of Presto is John Vosey. I'm John Nowacki. Thanks for listening. Presto is a production of New England Public Radio.